often are a little bit challenging to get here in time, so I apologize for being a few minutes late. Welcome back those that have been with Fundamentals of the Faith. I heard that was a good class, so you'll get to hear chapter 12, the last day of Acts that today. So next, uh, next time you'll get to hear uh, Mac, and he's going to go through Daniel, correct? All right, well, let's go ahead and open up in prayer today. Father, we are so thankful for just your love, and we know that Christmas time we think of the birth of Christ, and yet as believers we can't think about the birth of Christ without the death of Christ. It's a full package, and we know that you came to, to save us from our sins, and we are, we are thankful for that. I just think of, um, seems like our church has been hit many uh, this year with many of our dear saints that are, have gone with the Lord, and we think of Barb Springer now just... I know she saw the email last night that she's on hospice and really doesn't have very much time left. We pray for dying grace there. Just pray for comfort for the family during this time as well. And yet, Lord, we are thankful that uh, she knows you and she will soon be with you in glory. So uh, praise God for that. Just help us to have a good day in, in, in all parts of our services. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so for those that are coming in, I will not give you a recap of all 11 chapters before, all right? But I will just briefly go over last week's because it plays into this week just a little bit. Um, last week we saw, um, we saw the story of Cornelius and uh, Peter and God's vision that he had sent to both of them. Peter had the vision that said, with the cloud that came down with the unclean animals... And this was the story where God was telling him that now there is no such thing as being unclean. Where it's transferring from the Old Testament into the New Testament. And the gospel now is also being presented to, uh, to the Gentiles. And it caused a little bit of a stir, even those that were with him, uh, when they saw that the, uh, the Holy Spirit came upon the Gentiles, were kind of taken back. When they reported back to Jerusalem these things, the Jews were like, what? But then Peter gave the account, the beautiful account of how things had happened. And, you know, we kind of joked and said that was the mic drop moment, you know, that, that they had no argument when they heard how the Lord had worked. And so we see the start of really the, the gospel being taken into, uh, in, into the Gentile community. So now as we continue to move forward, we get into chapter 12, and let's see here if I missed too much. I think that's good. We'll pick up, if I miss something, we'll go ahead and, and pick up into chapter 12. So let's go ahead, and if I can have somebody read the first four verses, one through four of chapter 12. Anyone? Thanks, man. good thank you and i might go back just a little bit because there's just a little interlude on the last two verses in chapter 11 too i missed um, 
there was a prophet that had also said that there was going to be a famine. So while Barnabas and Saul were in Antioch, um, it says in verse 29, then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea, back in Jerusalem, really. And this they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So at that time, we were kind of joking last week, saying it's interesting because the Jews really saw the Gentiles as being kind of uh, a, a step lower than them, right? A class lower. And yet we see now as the church evolves, what's the church doing in Antioch? They're sending help back to this proud church. So they're really starting to meet the needs of everyone. We see just in this, this chapter 12, chapter 12 is almost like an interlude chapter. It, it, it doesn't tie in 100% with the timing or chronologically, but it's kind of like, like it says in verse 12, or, or verse 1 and 12, now about that time. So it's kind of like, well, all this has been going on. Now we have just this statement of, of really some additional persecution going on. So we see in verse 1, um, I'd mentioned the famine that was going on. And about this time, Herod was persecuting the church. I also want to just note that up to this point, this is really the fifth outbreak of persecution that's been mentioned in Acts. We saw it in Acts chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, 8, and 12. And the Herodian family was never a friend to the family of God. Again, sometimes I don't like to just steal material, but sometimes people say it better than what I can. So I'm going to just read this from Warren Wearsby, and it gives a little bit of background into Herod's if you were wondering. And he uses a verse up there, 1 Peter 3.12, the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. But he says, God watched and noted what Herod Agrippa I was doing to his people. This evil man was the grandson of Herod the Great, who ordered the Bethlehem children to be murdered, and the nephew of Herod and Antipas, who had John the Baptist beheaded. They were a scheming and murderous family. The Herods were despised by the Jews, who resented having Edomites ruling over them. Of course, Herod knew this, so he persecuted the church to convince the Jewish people of his loyalty to the traditions of the fathers. Now that the Gentiles were openly a part of the church, Herod's plan was even more agreeable to the nationalistic Jews who had no place for pagans. So that gives you a little bit more of the historical aspect. A lot of politics back in the day as well. We see politics being involved in today too, but here uh, Herod was definitely uh, looking at how can he make himself the best, but also how can he kind of keep things stirred up a little bit with the Jewish communities and with, with the, uh, the Gentiles. So verse 2, Herod had the apostle James beheaded uh, when he says that it was with the sword that he killed him. He was beheaded. Uh, he was the first apostle to be martyred. His brother John would be the last living apostle. So they were part of that inner sanctum with, with God, Peter, James, and John, or with Jesus. And I'm just going to use, if you remember back, there's also the verses in Matthew 20, 22 through 23. It said, uh, but Jesus answered and said, and this was, I think, their mother that had said, can they sit at the right hand, uh, right hand, the left hand of you? But here in Matthew 20, he says, 
But Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? And they said to him, we are able. So he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and my left is not mine to give, but it is for those whom it is prepared by my father. And what this is really saying is the baptism referred to in Matthew there is really the immersion of the Lord into suffering. And that's what he's talking about here. Are you willing to suffer? Do you understand what you're asking for? To get this, you will have to suffer for my sake. And, uh, and that's what we see here with James being the first one as, uh, to die as a martyr. Um, we all face persecution. Maybe not to the point of beheading, but we do face persecution as Christians, don't we? And in this case, again, the persecution was death by beheading. Verse 3, and because he saw that it pleased the Jews, kind of like what Warren Wearsby said in the prior slide, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. So we know that probably the fate of Peter probably looks similar to James. Only it does say that it was during the days of the unleavened bread. So maybe he, he thought, you know what, I'm not going to rile the Jews up during this time of celebration. So it's better, they know what got him in the, in the prison. We'll just let him sit there for a few days. And then it will be time, then I can act on it again. And no doubt, he had the same thing in mind uh, as what James was. So when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him uh, before the people at Passover. They really had four groups of four men that were guarding him says, uh, four squads. Um, each squad had four soldiers and they rotated on the watch. Um, we see in verse 6, we haven't read that yet, but I'll read that verse now. And when Herod was about to bring him out that night, Peter was sleeping bound with two chains between two soldiers and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. So we see two of them were, were right there with him. They were chained. The other two were outside the guard. So that gives you an idea of, of the uh, really maximum security, I think, wasn't it? Um, was it overkill that they had this many people here? What's the past history that you think of, even with the Herods and stuff here? The resurrection was one, yeah. Well, you're, you're on to it. I think actually it was back in, I believe, Acts 5, uh, Acts 5.19. There was a similar case where um, they had Peter and the apostles imprisoned. And there was another miraculous angel that came and let them out, right? So there's a little bit of history here. And I'm sure they're thinking maybe we can't mess this up, right? Guys, we're going to chain them this time. So we got proof. Uh, we got proof with everything. Warren Rusby notes that the Jerusalem church... Oh, this is just another side note. So we see the death of James. Um, Warren Rusby notes that the Jerusalem church did not replace James as they had replaced Judas. Any ideas why? Why would they not replace the apostle now at this point? Any thoughts?
think it's the other James, I believe. I think it's James, the brother of Christ, that was still alive, and we'll see him referenced. Well, let me just, let me just share what Warren has. You can see if this is, this is something that Warren Wearsby wrote. But I thought this was an interesting, because I hadn't really thought about it too much. But he says, as long as the gospel was going to the Jew first, it was necessary to have the full complement of 12 apostles to witness to the 12 tribes of Israel. Does that make sense? So the stoning of Stephen ended that special witness to Israel, so the number of official witnesses was no longer important. So we started with Jerusalem, started with the Jews, and I can see Burke's mulling that over in his mind here a little bit, so we'll get some comments up later as you think about that. But I think it's probably pretty realistic. But it went to the Jews, and now it's continuing to go to the Gentiles. In chapter 13, we see Paul going exclusively to the Gentiles. But I think that's probably a pretty good uh, fact that Warren has on that. But any commentary from you all? Right. Yeah. sure if it's 100 percent there's some speculation there definitely so yeah yeah all right well let's go in and read the, some more verses here and let me see i have five through 17 but that seems like a long section so let's do uh let's go five through ten can somebody read or five through nine somebody read five through nine for me who has that oops back here go ahead good thank you so peter was therefore kept in prison and i always love so often we talk about that little three-letter word but but it, it it's it's such a good verse to to highlight what's coming up you know he was here's the fact peter was therefore kept in prison but constant prayer was offered to god for him by the church and i love that because you know we talk often about Acts being a transition book. But what's the one fundamental that we see throughout? Prayer. Prayer is always a major focus, as we've seen all through the 12 chapters so far. And I can't help but think, you know, if, if you're sitting there, Peter is in jail, 
He's got to feel those prayers. He knows that the church is back there praying. And I think about even, you know, we pray for, you know, Barb Springer. We pray for others that, that are going through things. Um, I know even last week my dad had a virus and, and, you know, all the kids were praying for him at home or whatever. But I know the one night he felt better and he told my mom, you know, it's, I can feel the power of prayer, you know. And we oftentimes probably all have been recipients of that. But one of the marks of a, fun, you know, of a good church is they pray for the saints. They pray for each other. And I think that that is a critical thing. And those, those were offered to God. Um, <clears throat> in today's world, though, just to, you know, kind of looking at things, prayer was an important thing. Today you might say, well, why didn't the church pick it? It seemed like there were some injustices being done here, wasn't it? They could go out there with signs. They could say, we demand that you release him. You know, there's cause. But, you know, our first calling is not to do that, but it's to pray. And I oftentimes think about even causes where maybe they're good causes that people get involved. How much prayer goes into those things? And I think it's just a good reminder for us as well. Prayer is a recognition of our dependence upon God. Prayer properly offered, it's always a statement of humility. And I think that that's so true. Because in asking God our Father for help, we're really saying, I can't control this. I can't myself change it. It's only through you. James says we ask for wisdom as well. It's good to ask for wisdom in times of, of trouble, in times of of, of conflict where we don't know what to do. We pray to God. We're thankful that he's in control ultimately. And, uh, and that's what we look. Verse 6, again, when Herod was about to bring him out that night, Peter was sleeping bound with two chains between the doors. I think chapter 6 is, uh, if I could contrast what I would say, man's timing. Herod thought he had it all planned out, right? He had the people. They were chained. His plans were that next day he was going to get Peter and he was going to do whatever he needed to do to appease the Jews. But then we see in verse 7, God's timing. I always like God's timing. What was God's timing? An angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison. And he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. And I just think, you know, the Lord's timing is such that he supplied that angel of the Lord to, to be there with him. You think about um, just the miracles that went on there. You know, the fact that this bright light was shining, but it didn't wake the guards. Isn't that pretty crazy when you think about it? Uh, the Lord's timing, again, he didn't, uh, he hit Peter on the side, kind of like if you fall asleep in the church, you get the elbow. Maybe that's an angel of the Lord. I don't know, but, you know. Oh, yeah. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And he's snoring must not have kept either of the other guards up, right? There wasn't the rollover thing that you might get at home. Yeah, but I mean, it's really miraculous. Verse 7, And behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone around him. And he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly, and his chains fell off. 
Um, again, we talked about it, but what else do you think gave Peter confidence and peace through all of this? Being in tune with the Lord. Being in tune with the Lord, yeah. 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 Anything else? Yeah. Well, there's an experience that Peter's had this happen before. Yeah, he did. This is for the first time. <laughs> right. And what if the Lord didn't answer the prayer, though? I mean, he's probably went, went to sleep thinking, well, I'm, I'm just tired. I'm sleeping, right? He was pretty sound. It's the Lord's will. He, even if he knew the fate of James had just happened, he was ready, wasn't he? Right. Yeah. Amy. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Good. Yes, Leo. That's say that one more time. Yeah, that's right. Good point. That's right. So those are the things that provided comfort to him. There are a few verses in here that was I can't remember if they were in Dwight's or Warren's, and I think I might have added some. You know, maybe you're going through some times, even today, that these verses, I'll just read through them, but, you know, much like Peter could sleep with two prison guards, we can still have that confidence and peace. And those verses, you're probably all familiar with them, but I'm going to read them, and if they can bless you today, then that's, that's great. Acts 12:5. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And I, we again talked about that. Prayer was so significant. Philippians 4, um, 6 and 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Psalm 4, 8. I will both lie down in peace and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. That's a great one just to think about before you go to bed or even if your kids are scared. Read them this verse. That's a, that's a great verse. And then Isaiah 41.10. Um, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And I couldn't think when I was kind of reviewing this this morning before, before uh, when I was up, uh, you know, in verse 1, it says, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass them. He was wanting to run judgment with his right hand. Here we see a different picture of God's. God can also strike with his right hand. But in, in Isaiah, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And we see God's righteous right hand even in the work of Peter here, I think. But anyway, those are just some great verses that I wanted to share this morning, too. All right, I'll leave those up there. We're not ready for the map. Verse 8, Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. Uh, he put on your garment and follow me. And, um, you know, there's, it's interesting because the, the angel could just have taken him up and, and moved him straight out of there, couldn't he have? And yet, you know, in such a great um, miracle that's going on, Sometimes he still wants the ordinary to happen. What did Peter have to do? Follow me. Put on your sandals. You know, it's, it's a great message still that says he still had a choice in this thing. He could have said, I better not, because if I leave and they catch me, I'm going to be killed. But 
what the angels say? Follow me. And he was even kind of groggy through this whole thing, right? He thought he was still in a trance almost. It wasn't until later that he kind of woke up and really said, wow, this is, this is quite the miracle. But still, he had to follow him. He had to follow the angel, and he was trusting in God through that. Verse 9, so he went out and followed him and did not know what was done by the angel was real, uh, but thought he was seeing a vision. Again, he was probably, you know how it's like uh, when you get up in the morning, you need a few minutes to collect yourself and get your first cup of coffee, right? Um, so Peter was not quite there yet. But boy, what significance that was going on. Verse 10, when they were past the, this is a great, this is just kind of like a, a mystery if you were thinking about it in a movie. They got past the first and the second guard posts. They came to the iron gate that leads to the city. Of course, if it were a movie, it'd be much more dramatic with swinging ropes and everything else, right? But here it just says they walked by and nobody was, was really there. They walked by unhindered. They came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. Pretty amazing, isn't it? Um, God instructed it to do so. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. So now Peter's kind of like, okay, the angel's got me out. Now what? Now what do you do? So where does he turn? Look at verse 11. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. He knew what was about to come. The Jews wanted to see um, him killed as well because the message that they were preaching was definitely contrary to what the Jewish culture was, right? Uh, he was preaching that the Messiah had come and the Messiah was Jesus. He preached Christ. Let me just ask you in this, this uh, uh, and I think some of it alludes back to what Leah had said, that um, God had promised uh, Peter that he would live a long life. But as you think about it, why was James, James allowed to be killed and Peter wasn't? Kind of get into a little bit of speculation here, but what's that? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. He just allowed that to happen as, as the, being the first one. Um, we don't always know the answer to these things, but uh, we don't always understand the why. Ultimately, we rely on his sovereign purposes, um, but sometimes they are hidden from us. All right, verse 12. So when he had considered this... Uh, so when, when Peter was probably just thinking, what, what just went on? Now what do I do? Uh, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. Why do you think that was his first place to go? Yeah, and I got to believe that he had been there many times praying for the saints before, don't you think? That was a house of prayer. And no doubt there were other places because here he says, now go tell James and others. So there was no doubt other pockets of people in homes praying. They didn't have the, the facilities here yet, right, to go into. So he knew that that was probably the major source of prayer. And so that's where he went. Verse 13. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda, 
which in Greek means Rose, so her name was Rose, uh, came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice because of her gladness, she did not open the gate but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. And I think that's always kind of comical. Yeah. Here he is, and there's so much excitement that you fail to invite the guest yet. I mean, isn't that pretty good? Uh, it's kind of like somebody, maybe, maybe you feel the same way this time of year when Amazon delivers your package. Yay! <laughs> you know, I don't know. <laughs> but you forget to open it. That's maybe why they just set the package out front now. But in all seriousness, yeah, there was so much excitement that you kind of forget that uh, what you're praying for may just have been delivered to your doorstep. You know, they were praying for Peter to be safe, right? To, to get delivered. And instead, there was much consternation amongst the group. And what was the response here? Um, verse 15. But they said to her, you are beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. And so they said, it is his angel. And I think that's just, you know, kind of a hilarious story. I did not realize, and sometimes the, you know, the commentaries will provide some things that you don't always gather but it's said that there's a Jewish superstition that each person had his own guardian angel who could assume that person's form. We know that that's wrong. Could be what was in view here. I don't know. Has anyone else heard that before? Anyone? Not really? Okay. Well, we'll take it with a grain of salt. But anyway, there is a superstition that was relayed down on that. So it's possible that that's why they say maybe the angel was, was you know, taking his form. Uh, we don't know, and I don't want to speculate too much, but that was some of the commentaries that had, had uh, provided that. Now, Peter continued knocking, and that's a good thing. <laughs> and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. And I imagine that they were astonished, um, because here it is that they've been praying for him, and he shows up. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to him, them how the Lord had brought him out of of the prison. And he said, Go, tell these things to James and to, to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. A number of things that I couldn't help but think of, even in here, you know, it probably was a, a time where they had to be very guarded as the church. Um, if the Jews, we saw Herod, if he was arresting people, and especially if you were associated with the apostles, you had a target on your back. So there's kind of some common sense things here that I think that we see happening. You know, they could have come in and said, God will protect us. And yet, Peter is kind of saying, you know, just, just keep it down. You know, we don't need to cause a stir to have everybody coming over here to figure out what's going on. Um, but they were astonished. And again, Peter told them to keep quiet. Um, James, again, is the half-brother of the Lord. So he wanted the word to get out that he was out in the open now. Peter, at this point, though, went into hiding. We don't see a lot more about him in Acts. I think he makes a brief appearance in chapter 15. But otherwise, the rest of Acts is turned over to Paul, to Saul here coming up. So we don't see much more in Acts about, about Peter. All right. Verse 18, I guess I kept reading here, so I apologize on that. Then as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. I bet. Imagine that first light, what was happening. Oh, they knew that if he was gone, they were in trouble. 
and justice was done swiftly according to Herod. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judah to Caesarea and stayed there. So, um, yeah, if you were a guard, that was very serious business, right? Um, we don't know how many got killed, but we know they got killed. You know, speculations could be that all 16 of them, you know, the four groups of four. could have been others, too, because it wasn't just the, the gate right next to the cell, but they got past the second gate and the outside gate. So we just don't know. But Herod was just an evil, evil man. All right, any comments on any of this so far? Go ahead. We had a slide here, and I'll go back. Sorry. Nope, that's all right. And the whole group of Herods was, was pretty nasty. But I'll let you take a look at that one. Uh, and I can't remember for sure. I don't think it was the same Herod, but the, definitely within the family. None of the Herods were, were good towards Christians or towards the Jews even. So you could lump them all together and say they all were wanting to, to kill. Yeah, killed the Jews. Yes. Yes. It's a different James. Not the James that got killed. I was reading that this morning, and I did double take and said, wait a minute, he got killed here. No, this is James, the half-brother of Jesus. Yes. Yeah. Oh, you're right. This is John Mark. Yeah, excuse me. Yes, excuse me. You, I stand corrected. Thank you. All right, did, was there another hand up someplace? All right, we'll finish it out. Go to verse 20. And I will just show you the proverbial map here that sometimes we like to see where they were. So if you look at... You know, Herod was in Caesarea. That was the, the city that was built, you know, for Caesar. Had some marvelous amphitheaters and things like that. But they were mentoring Tyre and Sidon up here. And I believe that they all kind of traded, you know, together on things in, in terms of uh, just goods and services, you might say. They were, they were kind of relying upon each other in there. So there was an association so when we see verse 20 coming, um, and now we start to see, now Herod had, them very, had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. But they came to him with one account, and having made Blastus the king's personal aid, their friend, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So again, it's a... It's a reciprocal item that they, they had. It's in spite of not really caring for Herod too much, they were relying upon them, probably for trade. And I think that's the, that's the main thing that we see here. But in relying upon him, they also then had to, um, verse 21, so on a, on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on the throne and gave an oration to them. 
And the people kept shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man, um, which is always interesting. So they were elevating him to the, really, to a God, you might say. Um, which is not good. In Isaiah 42, 8, God says he will not share his glory. Those who try to play God rob him of his glory and are in serious trouble. And that's in verse 23. Uh, Warren Wiersbe says in terms of Tyre and Sidon, uh, they were concerned about only one thing, getting sufficient food to feed their stomachs. To be sure, food is essential to life. But when we pay any price to get that food, we are doing wrong. By flattering the king and calling him a god, the delegation knew they could get what they wanted. And so they really appealed to his ego, right? To his pride by, by doing what they were doing. So what happens? This is almost an Alfred Hitchcock thing now when you start to look into it, right? Verse 23. Then immediately, and usually that word immediately means immediately, right? Uh, an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. Wow. That's not a real good thing, is it? Now, there was a little bit more just historian-wise, and I always like when you can find things that complement what the Scripture says. And I'll just read this. This was by Josephus, who was a historian at that time. So he wrote about this situation. He said, clad in a garment woven completely of silver so that its texture was indeed wondrous, he entered the theater at daybreak. There the silver, illuminated by the touch of the first rays of the sun, was wondrously radiant and by its glitter inspired fear and awe in those who gazed intently upon it. Straightway his flappers or flatterers raised their voices from various directions, addressing him as God, as a God. May you be propitious to, to us, they added. And if we have hitherto feared you as a man, yet henceforth we agree that you are more than mortal in your being. The king did not rebuke them, nor did he reject their flattery as impious. But shortly thereafter he felt a stab of pain in his heart. He was also gripped in his stomach by an ache that he felt everywhere at once and that was intense from the start. They hastened, therefore, to convey him to the palace, and the word flashed about to everyone that, that he was on the very verge of death. Exhausted after five straight days by the pain in the abdomen, he departed this life in the 54th year of his life. So that probably sums up when it says that he was uh, eaten by worms and died, that probably was five days of very painful, painful death. God takes it seriously when we, somebody tries to elevate themselves up uh, to be a God. I think of even some of the dictators we have in place today, you know, that they almost, I don't know if they do truly, but they almost want to be worshipped as a God. And we know that the Antichrist will at some point uh, come forth in that same, same vein. Very serious, though. Um, to, to do so. Despite Herod's harassment and the persecution of the church, the word of God grew and multiplied, as it says in verse 25. So I'll just finish this out. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry. And they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Again, 
chapter 11 was the famine. They took goods from Antioch down to Jerusalem. Now they're going back. So they said, that's where it kind of ties in a little bit together here. So they fulfilled their mission. Now they're going back. Uh, they returned from Jerusalem that they had fulfilled their ministry. And they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Um, despite Herod's harassment and persecution of the church, the word of God grew and multiplied. You know, we see that James died. That could have been an out for the church. They could have said, life is too hard. What are we doing? And yet, the church of God grew and multiplied. Herod died. They were persecuted under Herod more. And yet, what did the church do? It grew and multiplied. Matthew twenty four thirty five said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. So, we see now that in verse 25, it marks a very important transition in church history. And at this point in the narrative, Jerusalem and P Peter, the apostle to the Jews, recedes. Again, except for a brief encounter in chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council. But now will be the apostle Paul and the church in Antioch that will become the main emphasis. And we'll see a shift west, primarily towards a Gentile church that emerges. So, Lord willing, I think the next time that I, I talk, I might, uh, if you all would like, I can continue to, to look at Acts and we'll finish the book out probably in a year or nine months or whenever my next time to teach is. But uh, I want to just leave you with just, you know, we talked about the introduction to Acts and we saw that Acts 1.8 was the key verse, right? You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. We saw that power being the Holy Spirit at the day of Pentecost. We saw that the Gentiles also received that power. The initial set of Jews in Judea and Samaria received that power. That was the Holy Spirit. That was a plan. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So we kind of had the outline one. You know, we, we worked through almost half the book. But we see how um, in the transition of, of the gospel, uh, it was for the Jew first. It was rejected by the Jews in many cases. And now it was going to the Gentiles and continue to be proliferated. Just one more item here that we had in our introduction. Seven progress reports. It kind of goes back to what we were saying. Um, even through the persecution, uh, the Lord greatly grew and multiplied the church. We saw four different times in uh, Acts 2, Acts 6, Acts 9, and Acts 12, um, just the status report that was given. And I think that, you know, oftentimes when we see this, there's also thanksgiving. The church did two things. They were thankful and they prayed. And I think as, as church today, uh, that's not transition anymore. We ought to be thankful <laughs> and continue to pray those are two items that really stuck out to me so far in acts and then also acts 1 8 is is the matthew 28 20 it's the great commission and we saw that in the early church now we have matthew 28 20 to go out and make disciples everywhere right uh, and what do they do they preach christ and what do we do today we preach christ so anyway any final words from anyone
Yeah. That's a great point. Like we said, what Luke does in the book of Acts is really just presents a historic account. Doesn't always say why. Why was that? And that's where the epistles come in. Uh, Ephesians, Galatians, you know, they all start to say, why was this a mystery that was unfolded to the church? You know, that the Jew and the Gentile now are one. Uh, that was radical at the time. And we saw that at the beginning with Acts, right? What happened when it went when they saw the four people that were with, I believe, Peter, when they saw that the Spirit was given to the Gentiles, they almost freaked out, like, what is this going on? We're supposed to be better than the, the Gentiles. But then Peter had the vision, the uncleanness, and that was the start of the understanding how the Jew and the Gentile now were one. There was no class. There was nothing else. But it was, it was Christ first and that he was building his church. So great, great point. Anybody else? Well, thank you for the 12 weeks that we've had. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I've learned a lot and, and appreciate your uh, participation in it as well. So let's go ahead and pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, um, the early church is, is one that with great boldness stood for you. And they didn't do this of their own accord, but it was through the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm thankful that the Spirit just is, is just as powerful today. And oftentimes we just neglect to pray you and asking for for wisdom and help from you but we know in the book of james you told us to ask for wisdom and you've you've supplied all of our needs and there's so much power waiting for us and we want to direct that towards serving and, and worshiping you lord so thank you for the early church that we can learn from them thank you that it's built off of one of preaching christ and lord i pray that even as we go into the service that we would we would do so today um, and thank you for your word in Jesus' name, amen. Have a great day. Yeah.